This is Van Color. My name is Moamir, and today on This Is Van Color, I'm joined by the South China Morning Post's Vancouver correspondent, a journalist for more than 20 years, but he doesn't look it. He worked for Australian newspapers and the London Evening Standard before arriving in Hong Kong. He is an award-winning journalist for his excellence in investigative reporting and human rights reporting. He's been a resident of Canada for 10 years now. So many of you wanted to have him on the show. He's here. Finally, he is Ian Young. Ian, how are you? I'm well, Mo. How are you? What an introduction. (laughs) I'm stoked to have you here, man. I mean, I'm alive, so that's a blessing. But I am excited to talk to you. A lot of people on Twitter apparently ready to riot if I wasn't able to sit down with you for an hour. Oh, well, (laughs) we've got to give them what they want. (laughs) What, What can I say? You know that I've been a big fan of your work, a relatively new fan, but a big fan nonetheless. I've happily shouted out your work on CKNW a couple times now when I would have the odd hit there. Lately, you've had some very fascinating insights into the COVID-19 crisis, but through a racialized lens, which I think has been very poignant. And that's stuff that I want to touch on. But before we get into that... Where are we on this mask debate? Should we be wearing masks, even if they're not N95 masks? Were you able to reach a conclusion on this? Yeah, well, my conclusion is that uh, if you are comfortable wearing a mask, wear a damn mask. A lot of the discussion uh, became so heated and it was kind of silly. You know, I think that there's been uh, this, this intention Uh, to try and do good by saying, look, don't wear masks because we need to save them for people who really need them. Mm -hmm. That's that's totally valid. But I think that anyone who comes from, uh, you know, an East Asian background, whether that's Japanese or Taiwanese or Hong Kong or mainland China, uh, they're going to sort of look at that advice and go, well, yeah, you know, I'll wear my mask. So we should wear masks even if they're not N95 masks? Like you sort of, you left me a little ambiguous there. I, I did, but that was deliberate. I'm, I'm not <laughs> saying you should. I'm not saying one should wear a mask. I'm, I'm saying that um, um, if you want to wear a mask and um, preferably if you want to wear a mask that does not involve you mm-hmm. away supply from people who do need them more than you do, right? frontline worker, then wear a mask. Um, you know, I think that people like Bonnie Henry and Theresa Tam and, you know, to an extent health authorities around the world do walk a very, very fine line. But for me, um, when I see advice that um, oh, masks, uh, masks and not useful masks do more harm than good for the wearer, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I just kind of, you know, I roll my eyes a little bit. I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole body of evidence to suggest that masks can protect the wearer and they certainly protect um, um, people who may be infected by the wearer. Now, was the mask debate itself racialized? And you sort of already touched on this. There's that stereotype of Asians of all nationalities wearing masks. Did that play a role in how we looked at masks and how we debated masks? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that in the way it's evolved has been quite fascinating because early on, um, in the COVID-19 outbreak, if you cast your mind back to the dim distant days of January, mm-hmm. 
if you were wearing a mask in Metro Vancouver, um, you were going to get some funny looks. You know, you, you people were going to think well, that's a bit strange. And generally, we're talking about Asians. We're talking about East Asians. Mm-hmm. And generally, we're talking about ethnically Chinese people who are wearing face masks. Um, now, that's evolved. People have become more aware of what this is all about. People were aware that on um, a great many points to do with COVID-19, uh, the Chinese community was well ahead of the curve, well ahead of um, this uh, instruction to socially distance oneself. Uh, and, and masks, I think, are part of the, that, that broad, broad idea that, um, you know, the, East, the Chinese community here um, uh, was ahead of the curve when it comes to COVID-19. Yeah, so let's elaborate on that because Asian communities did seem to be almost ridiculed for for mask wearing and even early social distancing measures in Vancouver. But you've floated this idea that their early adoption and the early adoption of measures within some of these ethnic communities probably helped stop the spread of COVID-19. Can you sort of walk me through what was happening within that community and maybe how it led to better numbers than anticipated in British Columbia or in Vancouver? Sure. I mean, I don't want to oversell it because I think that it's going to be a long time before the dust has settled and we exactly know exactly um, how we got to be where we are and whether this whether this whole thing pans out okay in BC. Sure. But, but having said that, um, you know, if you cast your mind back again to around late January, around Lunar New Year, um, uh, there was a great deal of concern within the Chinese community. People who were in my circles, friends, family, everyone was concerned about COVID-19. Everyone was concerned about what was happening in Wuhan. Um, People who had family and friends in Hong Kong, that was all they could talk about. It was the only topic of discussion. And, of course, when that happens, uh, what that means is that um, people are guided by their peer groups. People are guided to do what they see their family and friends doing, whether that's in Hong Kong or in China or in Vancouver. Right. And that, yeah, you know, and to that extent, the Pacific Ocean may as well not exist. You know, I think that for a lot of people, uh, Vancouver remains a bit of a suburb of, mm-hmm. of Hong Kong and mainland China. And people were socially distancing. People here in Vancouver started um, to stay at home. They stopped going to crowded places. They emptied uh, Chinese malls like the Aberdeen Centre Mall in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the rest of the community didn't really understand what was going on. Right. And, and you said January, these conversations were at the forefront. Is that right? Did I hear that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Chinese New Year this year, I think, was around late January, um, around Australia Day, actually. Um, and um, yeah, the, this was all people could talk about, but it just wasn't, it wasn't a big thing here. People knew about COVID-19. Mm-hmm. But outside the Chinese communities, people really weren't paying a great deal of attention to it. And it was only when it became manifested on the streets and in the Chinese malls and in Chinese restaurants, when people emptied them, ethnically Chinese people emptied them, that non-Chinese people could see this. And they thought, well, what's going on here? And the immediate reaction was, this is an overreaction because our health officials telling us this is a low-risk event. Why are, why are people emptying the malls? It must be something to do with racism. And, you know, that's a terrible, I think it's a, a, a terrible mistake. I'll admit, I was guilty of this as well. Not so much the looking at the Asian communities and what they were doing. But I remember I did a hit on CKW in late January 
And we were sort of doing a rundown through the news. It was me and Jody Vance. And the COVID-19 coronavirus came up. And I was sitting there, and I regret it now, obviously, but I didn't know any better. And I was sitting there, and I said, you know, this is not a huge deal. We've seen stuff like SARS and MERS, and it all passes. All the health authorities are saying it's okay. Uh, this is not going to be a big story. <laughs> because I didn't know any better. I was just going off what I was reading in the media. Sure, you're not alone in that. I mean, I'm, this is this is no diss on you. And it's no mm-hmm. diss on people who didn't, um, who didn't twig early. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who are exposed to um, Hong Kong and Chinese and Taiwanese news sources did twig early because mm-hmm. they were seeing it develop in a different way and with different levels of concern. Um, than people here who 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 may may not read Chinese. Mm-hmm. If you're getting your news purely from English language sources, whether that's here or in the United States or in Britain or wherever you're from, you're getting a different set of filters to people who are reading in Chinese and watching Chinese language news and talking to other people who speak Chinese. Um, and I can't overemphasize. Uh, how this illustrated to me that Greater Vancouver is still very much a segregated place. Mm -hmm. You know, there are two cities, at least two cities here, you know, we're talking, I'm talking about the Chinese city and the non-Chinese city, you know, but there are a lot of, a lot of other different communities, but this was certainly, uh, it really drove home to me just how true that was that there is this, this big divide between these communities. Right. So what was Chinese language news media effectively saying around that time in January that English language media was not portraying? Well, this is, this is the thing, though. English language media um, was well aware of it. The South China Morning Post, for instance, we were reporting extensively on this. Um, and, you know, English language media, to a greater and lesser degree, had been reporting this mm-hmm. about what was going on in China. But um, it's a question of emphasis. Um, and this was something that was affecting people that people here in the Chinese community knew it was affecting their family and friends back in Hong Kong and in China and in Taiwan in, mm. ways, in ways that made it seem urgent and real that were not um, translated into uh, the greater non-Chinese community here in Vancouver. Now, you've touched on this idea of segregation within Vancouver And there is no doubt in my mind that anti-Chinese, anti-Asian sentiment has certainly flared up in this city. You keep an eye on this sort of thing quite a bit here in Vancouver. Do you think that this COVID crisis amplified existing sentiment or has the crisis now created more of this toxic sentiment? Um, I should say that, firstly, when I talk about segregation, I'm talking largely about self-segregation there for a start. So I'm not talking sure. about some sort of enforced uh, racial barriers. What I'm talking about is self-segregation. Um, uh, but I think that, that what COVID-19 and our responses to it do is accentuate what's already here. It magnifies what's already here. Because, mm-hmm. you know... Vancouver is generally, you know, a pretty decent sort of place, but there is a pretty loud minority of racists here as well, um, of all kinds. Mm-hmm. So when uh, we see people um, shouting COVID nineteen slurs or, or or spray painting something on someone's wall or what have you, uh, that's an expression I think of existing racism. I'm not convinced 
that this has um, created new racists out there. But what I do see is a fairly toxic sort of uh, environment, and it's it's certainly uh, magnified what was here. I think the other sentiment that is on the rise is, and we see this in our politics as well now, both here and in the United States, is how people are starting to feel about the government or the state of China, which I think a lot of that worry is fair around what the Chinese government does. In a world where there is a lot of dog whistling in terms of racism, what is the line between criticizing the government of China and specifically the Communist Party and being effectively racist? I think the easy answer, and the answer you always hear is that this is a fine line. I don't think it's a fine line at all. I think Hmm. it's an enormous thick line. Um, I don't see how someone uh, should be conflating very valid, perhaps, criticisms of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party and its actions with someone here who happens to be ethnically Chinese. I don't think that that is something you should be tripping over because it's an easy mistake to make. I think that if you are making that mistake, you really should pull yourself up and have a good, hard think about yourself. Right. Fighting this vast authoritarian, you know, regime with someone who happens to look ethnically Chinese. You know, I mean, just I just think that's absurd. I mean, you're not going to confuse, um, you know, a, 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 a Caucasian Vancouverite with, you know, the policies of Donald Trump necessarily. Why would you do that? It just doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that the best thing you can do is probably go out and meet some ethnically Chinese people. That's what I would say to people who make that mistake. Um, I do try to be kind. I do try to be generous in my assessments. But I think that um, the people who do make that mistake of conflation between someone, an individual who is ethnically Chinese and the Chinese government Mm -hmm. needs to go out and meet more Chinese people, more ethnically Chinese people, I think. Yeah. I guess I just ask that, and I know it sounded like a very basic question, but I ask that because we do live in a city where you know, SFU's Andy Yan is being criticized of being racist when he points out foreign ownership of of property in Vancouver. Even Brad West, who is vehemently critical of the Chinese government, has been accused of, you know, dog whistling certain uh, pro-nationalist, uh, populist attitudes, which which I don't think is fair either. So while I completely agree with you, and, and I agree with you that there's a stark difference between the two. There are people that that are saying no, there isn't. Oh, absolutely. I think that, and, and sometimes I really, am, I am trying to be kind. Sometimes, um, you know, people um, stumble over themselves due to a lack of familiarity. Is that probably the way to put it? Um, I, I, I just think that there uh, needs to be more thought, maybe. Mm-hmm. about the logic <laughs> that goes into that kind of assumption that an ethnically Chinese person is necessarily um, um, uh, comparable to the Chinese government. That's not mm-hmm. to say, that's not, that's not to say though, that Chinese government sympathisers and communist sympathisers do not exist here in Vancouver. Sure. There are plenty of communists and communist supporters and Maoists even in Vancouver, which might surprise a lot of people. Um, but not if you're in the Chinese community, you're probably not surprised by that <laughs> because this is a hugely varied community. 
Mm-hmm. There is no one Chinese community here in Vancouver. We are not a monolith. The Chinese community is not singular. It is a vast and complicated set of communities that, um, you know, gnash their teeth and throw sticks and stones at each other as well as the rest of the, co- the rest of the country, as well as the rest of Vancouver. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point to bring up because that community, that umbrella community is often seen as monolithic. And I know this from the South Asian experience where people talk about South Asians as a voting block or they talk about South Asian culture. And it's like, it's so diverse within even India or when you look at the Indian colony, which includes Pakistan and Bangladesh, just as it is in China. And a lot of people seem to forget that when they talk about certain groups. Oh yeah. And and I think, but I think part of the reason is that um, there are, there are certain heavy hitters in, in these communities. At the moment, the heavy hitters happen to be mainland Chinese. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of money coming in from mainland China. That's been, without doubt, the biggest source of Chinese immigration in recent years. And so it's become a very prominent thing and people have become aware of that. But within the Chinese communities here, of course, people are extremely aware of the, all of these various dynamic relationships and all the differences and all the different hues Mm-hmm. in the Chinese communities. Um, outside that, it can tend to look monolithic, um, but that's that's just wrong. It's just a mistake. Go out and meet some Chinese people and talk to them and you'll find out what I mean. Yeah. When we do talk about racism, something that comes up is criticizing cultural practices or cultural beliefs. And I think that we all do accept a certain amount of, of cultural relativism. Mm -hmm. So when is it fair to criticize cultural practices? Because one practice in China that's really coming under a lot of criticism is the wet market practice. Sure. Um, Yeah, no, excellent question. Uh, It's one that I get asked about a lot, actually. Um, But talking about relativism, wet markets are not wet markets are not wet markets. You know, anyone anyone who's been to Hong Kong, anyone who's been to, to, to you know, to a Chinese community outside of Canada even, um, knows that a wet market is not necessarily this horrible place where they sell, you know, bats and pangolins and civet cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, wet, a wet market is really just a place where you sell fruits and vegetables and fish and meat. Sometimes mm-hmm. there, are, there are live animals. Sometimes it's appalling. Sometimes they are very badly run and they have become uh, reservoirs for all sorts of infections and diseases and, um, and you know, novel diseases, mm-hmm. which is terrible. But don't tar wet markets as this bad thing. Wet markets are just part of the Chinese custom of having fresh fruit and vegetables, you know. I mean, you wouldn't, for instance, um, criticise, uh, you know, a, a, a grocer's uh, for necessarily being appalling, sure. Simply because you call simply because it happens to be referred to as a wet market. There are many very very well run wet markets in places like Taiwan and in Hong Kong, and you know, and also in parts of mainland China. But there are some very bad ones as well, you know. Um, and I think that there's no problem with criticising the bad ones because they are incredibly dangerous from a pandemic disease point of view. Um, and, you know, the Chinese government itself has been trying to crack down on them. How common are these wet markets that are dangerous, where there are exotic wildlife, where perhaps the 
butchering is not up to standards that we here in Vancouver might might be comfortable with? The, the short answer is that I don't know. You know, I okay, haven't been China, I've been to mainland China for many years, so I don't know. No, that's fair enough. It's it is just interesting because I think a lot of people who have never been to China, I've never been to China. We were aware that certain cultures eat certain different animals, but the wet market thing really came into the forefront in terms of the extreme dangerous wet markets, right? Yeah, what I can say is that, you know, wild animal selling as a practice is extremely dangerous for a food market, you know, and we are talking about wild live animals in many cases in mainland China in particular, that's something that has happened, you know, that's mm-hmm. something that does happen, you do, that's something that does occur and that is in fact a dangerous thing from a, from a pandemic disease point of view because you have live animals and, um, you know, live poultry and different kinds of animals all mixing together. And that was the source of, of you know, the bird, some of the bird flu outbreaks mm-hmm. that happened in Hong Kong. It's not a new thing. For instance, I was not surprised at all to hear the uh, supposition that um, COVID-19 came from wet markets. It's not at all a surprising thing um, because that's where a lot of diseases come from. You know, the, the SARS... Um, came from um, originally from civet cats. Well, originally from bats, actually, bats and civet cats. Um, mm. But, you know, things like that, things that are, um, you know, into the wet market supply um, and, you know, bang, you've got a pandemic. Right. Yeah. Is this crisis going to make policymakers in this country and maybe even the U.S. rethink the relationship with China? I mean, the evidence is so clear that... The Chinese government did cover up some information. They suppressed information. They clearly had some influence within the WHO to say things and and to do things, including legitimizing certain traditional Chinese medicines, some of which do not have much scientific basis. Are we going to rethink and reshape our relationship with China? And is that ultimately a good thing? Or can it even be put on a moral plane? Not only will it, it, it is right now, um, I think, reshaping the way that people think about China. And that I include there not just um, the public, but policymakers and politicians around the world. Mm-hmm. Because we do live in this uh, intensely globalised um, community. Um, and what happens in China affects the rest of the world. You know, it used to be that um, when, when the US sneezes, uh, the rest of the world gets a cold. Now it's when China sneezes, the rest of the world gets COVID-19 maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's the way it looks. Uh, And it's not just about pandemic disease. We're talking about, you know, economics and, you know, big geopolitical issues, you know, the South China Sea, all those sort of issues uh, are going, are in the process of being re-examined. This was even before COVID-19 though. You know, I think that um, the last year has certainly been a year of reckoning for um, Canadian policymakers when it comes to China, when we're talking about, uh, decisions about Huawei, mm-hmm. when we're talking about the handling of the Meng Wanzhou extradition case, uh, all of those things, um, you know, the, the, the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, um, being banged up in some Chinese prison somewhere for 500-plus days as we speak, mm-hmm. that's certainly um, uh, resulting in a uh, realignment of, of, of thinking um, among policymakers, absolutely. But I wonder how realistic it is. I mean, we there's so many industrial clusters within China that 
it's not as easy as just moving a factory. It's moving thousands of factories, all of which are intricately linked, right? So can we really rethink the relationship when the economic dependence is kind of baked into the the relationship? For sure. I'm not talking about economic disengagement, some, some sort of economic disengagement, because, I mean, China is obviously a huge part of the world and a huge part of the world market, as we are, mm-hmm. as the rest of the world is to China. You know, we do live in this super globalised community, and I don't think that um, people are going to succeed just by throwing up walls and saying, okay, no to China. But I think people need to go into this relationship with eyes wide open uh, about who they're dealing with. I mean, China is still a one-party communist state. Uh, Mm -hmm. It rules rules, um, by authoritarian means. Um, You can argue the toss about whether or not it is popular or not in, in, in China but it is an authoritarian government um, uh, that is ruled from down on high by Xi Jinping. Um, and so it can't be viewed through this same sort of paradigm that we, um, that we afford to other liberal democracies around the world. It's not that. Sure. From your understanding, and I, again, I don't know the depth of your knowledge when it comes to this, but is the authoritarian regime popular within China? Um, within China, I don't think it's very it's it's going to be very easy to gauge that. Um, I think that, uh, the, the, yes, I think that if you if you just do some sort of generalised polling of of whether or not there's support for the Chinese government, it's going to come out looking pretty good. In the same way, though, that you know Vladimir Putin's got pretty good numbers. Too. <laughs> um, you, so you're not you're, you're not looking at a, a transparent system. You're not looking at a necessarily informed community. Um, and it's very hard to sort of make a judgment. Oh well, China's China's government is popular, therefore they must be doing good things. Uh, mm. It's certainly not that simple. Did you hear of apparently this rumor that the Chinese government was trying to spread within certain social media circles about COVID nineteen originating from Americans or American soldiers? Yes, I heard that. Um, that, the, that sort of stuff is very, very prevalent. I think that anyone with any sort of vague following on social media um, who talks about China, as I do, as do all pretty much all of my colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to soon find out about these these sort of rumours and, um, uh, you know, th- these sort of things pop up on Twitter and Chinese social media everywhere. They're kind of ubiquitous. In fact, the, the, the thing about the, the American soldiers and, and stuff like that, 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 that sort of stuff spreads like wildfire on Chinese um, social media. Um, and it's, uh, it's very hard to say for sure, but I've gotten personally, you're asking me personally, I, I don't have much doubt that that is some sort of official seeding, that that is seeded um, uh, w- with official intent. You know, I mean, we, we, in fact, we can see the foreign ministry of China uh, does these briefings where they talk about all sorts of um, quasi spurious things about, you know, the origins of the disease, et cetera. So I wouldn't, yeah, everyone's aware of that sort of stuff in Chinese. <laughs> I think you answered my question because I was going to ask you, you know, is the source of that disinformation the Chinese government? Well, I, I mean, I think that a lot of the time um, the Chinese government is quite crafty about the way it is, um, the way it conducts itself. And I think that, for instance, in some of the conspiracy theories, you see um, uh, the foreign ministry or Chinese officials um, 
referencing Western media. And when I say media, I use that in the very loosest possible term. Mm-hmm. Conspiracy theory websites and things. For instance, there was even a Canadian conspiracy theory website that was cited by um, Chinese diplomats um, talking about the origins of COVID-19. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it's somewhat sophisticated is probably what I would say, uh, somewhat sophisticated. But I think that if you're alive to it, um, it's not hard to see um, to see this stuff for what it is. The Canadian conspiracy theory you're talking about is the Winnipeg Lab connection. Is that the one? I think that's that's one of them. There are actually a few floating around. There. That's that's certainly one of them. Um, and like with all good conspiracy theories, there are seeds of truth in the narratives, but um, the conclusions are um, are often a little bit off the off the wall. Um, you know, I, th- I think if we're going back to the origins of COVID nineteen, I think you can safely say that this is something uh, that scientists agree um, um, came from most likely bats, mm-hmm. uh, that it most likely uh, came from China and that the first human outbreaks were certainly in China. Um, that's not to say that there weren't um, s- examples of COVID-19 circulating quite early in the West, you know, quite early in, for instance, the United States. Um, but I don't think these, for instance, we see a lot of rumours too. Oh, you know, my grandma was sick in, in Seattle in, in October last year. Did she have COVID-19? Yeah, no, nah, she didn't. <laughs> you're, set, you're settling that one. You don't have to meet the grandma, you know. <laughs> you, you, oh, I know. I know, that grand, I know that grandma in Seattle last October very much likely did not have COVID-19. Yeah. Um, you, you don't take my word for that. Go back to go back to the virologists. Go back to the epidemiologists, and um, and they will tell you much the same. Yeah, the one thing I find interesting about conspiracy theories, and I love them. I just love hearing the ideas that people come up with. But the one thing I find interesting is that they usually try to fill a gap in the narrative, and a gap that's just gray or unclear or just hasn't been expressed clearly enough. When we look at the origin of COVID-19 and we look at the spread of COVID-19, are there any big questions that still have yet to be answered? Sure, there are are huge questions, um, but that's because science generally is quite slow. Mm -hmm. Science is is a slow process. It's not, um, you know, it's not a game of dominoes where you, you know, knock one over and all, everything becomes clear. Um, but there is sort of already a broad consensus about the, the the general origins of the disease, and and they don't generally involve bioweapons labs. Right. <laughs> and and when you say when you say bats, and you would know this more than I I would. Is it because someone consumed a bat or a bat bit them or either of those things? No, not necessarily someone eating a bat, you know, and certainly not someone tucking into bat soup as we saw on those videos, which were actually from China. They were from Palau and that was a travel blogger Mm -hmm. who was eating a bat as a stunt in Micronesia. Um, but we're talking about um, uh, the actual biological origins here. I'm not saying people are chowing down on bats and that's where they're getting the disease from. Um, you know, we're, with these sort of diseases, it's quite complicated. They do mix. There's mixing of viruses, mixing of viruses that occur within species and between species. Um, and so to say this is something as simple as someone eats an infected bat, um, that's also not quite right. 
Um, hmm. You know, I think I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, you know, pin my reputation on the science. <laughs> but it is, but it is quite complicated. Yeah. But the but the bat origin thing is 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 a fairly um, you know there's a, fa- a fairly broad scientific consensus about bats being um, being part of this part of this uh, this story. Hmm. So to go back to the question I just asked you, as an investigative journalist, as someone who is following the the spread of this disease, following the responses from governments, whether those are public health or whether those are propaganda responses, what questions do you want to see answered in terms of how we got here today? I want to know more about what China knew and when. I think we're getting a good picture of it um, because I think the Chinese government does have a strong case to answer uh, about its response because I think that we're already getting a pretty good picture of, um, you know, the obfuscation uh, at the start of this outbreak, Mm -hmm. the suppression of medical opinion um, about this disease. uh, And I want to know what the hierarchy of the government knew that they didn't tell the rest of the world in a timely fashion. Um, I think we're starting to get a pretty good picture of exact of, of that. And I want to, but I want to know more. I want to know when, who knew, why didn't we know? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You recently wrote a piece about Dr. Teresa Tam, Canada's chief public health officer. Did she take any missteps in her role or is hindsight 2020 here? And was she, perhaps as suggested by Terry Glavin, maybe naive just by going by the best information availed to her from the WHO and she was just following orders from Canada's Ministry of Health without being privy to the American and European intelligence about China suppressing its data and its information about this disease? I think the answer is yes. Um, there were missteps. She did make missteps. And yes, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, <laughs> you know, because she's not alone in having, having you know, danced to the tune of the World Health Organization. I think it's a, a massive stretch to argue that Theresa Tam um, has done something extraordinarily awful by um, uh, by by uh, by following the WHO's, um, you know directives and their advice um but that was a lot of that was flatly wrong a lot Mm. of that information turned out to be um you know i think largely based on wrong information that was coming out of china um but she's not alone in that i say it's nothing extraordinary i'm saying she's not alone in that um but yeah there were certainly some massive missteps um i think that the failure to act quickly on borders will go down as a very big misstep. Um, And, you know, there was a lot of flip-flopping about face masks. That's something that really um, gets the goat of the Chinese communities here. Um, And I think she lost a lot of of trust from within the Chinese community uh, because of that. And that's interesting. That's something that your article touched on quite a bit and an angle that I was not aware of. And we'll get into the sort of racist elements and maybe what the Conservative Party of Canada and people like Rebel Media are doing and saying about Dr. Theresa Tam. But you made this argument that within the Chinese community, there was a certain distrust for her. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think that it is a complicated dynamic. There is absolutely uh, a racialized and racist element um, to the criticism that we've seen recently on on 
on Dr. Tam, but at the same time, the Chinese community has been um, has also been very heavily critical of Dr. Tam. You know, I think that the mistrust of the World Health Organization and its guidance and anyone connected to it, as Dr. Tam is, mm-hmm. is an extre- that's an extremely prevalent point of view amongst um, particularly Hong Kong and Taiwanese Canadians. This isn't just something that is in some sort of dark corner of, um, you know, uh, of, of right-wing what right-wing racist discourse this mm-hmm. is sort of din- this is sort of dinner table conversation for a lot of hong kong and taiwanese canadians because this goes back long before covid-19 long before the pandemic this goes back to the way that the world health organization treats taiwan and the way it doesn't give it um uh, nation status nation member status mm. uh, and this presumption that the world health organization is thus kowtowing to, to Beijing. That's a discussion that the Chinese communities here in Canada have been having for years. Uh, and the fact that the, the, the fact that the, the right wing, the, the, the right wing non-Chinese folk um, are twigging to the same sort of things does not necessarily make the argument racist prima facie. Right. But I guess the right wing, especially the extremes of the right wing criticisms, if and that's being generous to call it that, they're sort of posing this question like, you know, does Theresa Tam work for Canada or for China? But what you're saying is certain Asian communities, the Taiwanese, Hong Kong communities in Canada, perhaps, they're looking at it more as a criticism for her ties to the WHO. Oh, yeah. They're certainly not looking at her and saying, oh, this is an ethnically Chinese person, and so therefore she must... You know, she 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 might be a communist. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I think that there, as I said, there is a greater awareness within those Chinese communities about what the World Health Organization is and is all about, and its connections to China mm-hmm. went back long before COVID nineteen. This is just something that's sort of kind of new to the right wing rabble rousers. Um, but for the Chinese communities, this has been going on for years. This discussion about the role of the World Health Organization and its connections to China. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'm 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 loath to sort of to point out this 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 discourse and say, oh, this is just just an, uh, just about racism. It's not just about racism. It's quite a complex dynamic. Um, and you know, it's not even j- just down to Hong Kong and Taiwanese Canadians. I mean, there's a lot of criticism of Dr. Tam's face mask stance among mainland Chinese <laughs> as well. You know, this went back and forth and back and forth. And I think because people from mainland China were being exposed to all sorts of different information about masks. You know, the government there was telling them people should be wearing masks in crowds and they were Hmm. seeing different reactions in China and from authorities and from experts, true experts. We're not talking about sort of rubbish opinions. Mm -hmm. Big difference between that and what Dr. Ken was saying here in Canada. Different circumstances at the time, for sure, but that creates this huge clash in the minds of people someone must be wrong is the assumption. Well, you know, Dr. Tan must be wrong or someone in China must be wrong, you know, and and so it it does create this big conflict between people's ideas. As the chief public health officer, does it make sense for Dr. Tam to have those ties to the WHO? Is that a common theme among similar positions around the world? Yeah, I don't necessarily see the problem with it. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. have ties to the World Health Organization. It's, it's an extremely important organization, especially when it comes to something like pandemics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, there is certainly a good argument 
um, uh, for reevaluating the way that the World Health Organization deals with member states, the way it deals with China, maybe. But is is now the the time to be talking about dismantling and defunding this body that stands as this dike between us and and and, and you know COVID nineteen? I think that there is a time and a place, and I don't think that's right now. I think that we first need to get this situation under control, and then we could probably try to sort out, you know, the, the whys and wherefores of the World Health Organization. Sure. And again, sort of going back to some of the earlier questions about the early adoption of social distancing measures from Asian communities in Vancouver, when the World Health Organization was saying that, you know, this virus is not being transmitted on a human-to-human basis... Was that something that Asian communities here locally, because they were getting media from from other sources, they didn't believe it? When you saw when people saw what was happening in China, yeah, they didn't believe it. They didn't. Yeah. I didn't believe it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. no one in my family believed it. You know, I mean, this it was it looked it looked self evident. You know, I don't even think the Chinese government believed it <laughs> at the time that um, at the World Health Organization said that. Um, well, they had evidence to the contrary, I think, by that point. I'm sorry, what did you say? Well I, well, I think the Chinese government would have had evidence to the contrary at that point. Like they would have, by January, they would have evidence that, yes, it is transmitted human to human, right? Oh, certainly. I think that the, the, by, by mid-January, which is, I think was when the WHO was issuing that tweet about um, about... Uh, there being no human-to-human transmission, I think it was quite clear there was human-to-human transmission going on. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, I, I can't see how the Chinese government could not have been aware of that. Right. So let's talk about the right-wing criticism of Dr. Theresa Tam. The Conservative Party of Canada, they're going through a leadership race. They're being very critical of her. One member of parliament in particular, we're seeing these online news organizations come out very strongly against her. There's an online petition. Is the criticism against Dr. Tam from that segment of the news media and from the political establishment, is that rooted in racism? Some of it most certainly is. Let me, let me, let me put it this way. Uh, when Derek Sloan asked whether, you know, Dr. Tam, whether, does she work for China? Does Theresa Tam work for China? You know, would you would would he have asked that of of you know a, another public health official um, who happened to not be Chinese? You know, what did he would he ask that of David Williams? You know, the Ontario Chief Public Public Health Minister, who mm-hmm. also who also said you know, oh, COVID nineteen is low risk. You know, um, he said they never recommended face masks. You know, and he's just following the tune of the World Health Organization too. Mm-hmm. In the same in the same way that Theresa Tam was. So then, why isn't he under the same, uh, you know, crossfire for, uh, from this type of criticism? Well, I, I think because Theresa Tam happens to be a soft target now because she she she's an appealing target to racists. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think that um, that notwithstanding. There is also plenty of valid criticism of Theresa Tam. There, I mean, these aren't. It's not an either-or thing. It's not mm-hmm. like it's 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 not like we can we can just say that oh, Theresa Tam has done everything right, or Theresa Tam has done everything wrong, or that that you know you, you try to say oh, well, the racists might say oh, Theresa Tam is a diversity hire, which I think right. is you know patently ridiculous. Yeah, also absolutely. But, 
But I think to say that all criticism of Theresa Tam is rooted in racism, that is equally ridiculous, you know, because I think that the prevalence of um, criticism within the Chinese communities of all kinds speaks against that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. It's it's hard to watch those rebel news videos or Tucker Carlson segments. And Tucker Carlson's not talking about Theresa Tam, but he's talking about China quite a bit, and not see it drenched with racism. <laughs> What I would do to um, inoculate oneself against those things is to, um, you know, to refer back to what the Chinese communities are talking about. Um, And I think that will give you a better understanding of what some of the criticisms are and what some of the valid criticisms are and what might be the invalid criticisms as well. Not because the Chinese community is any wiser, Mm -hmm. but because they're not as susceptible flat out anti-Chinese racism. And so sure. that, that way that way you can filter out what are the dud and are the dud not, you know, what are, what are not um, uh, valid criticisms of Dr. Tam. Now, there, there, there's a range of criticisms that could be thrown against Dr. Tam that are totally valid, you know, totally yeah. valid arguments. But at the same time, um, you do see this very heavily racialized discourse and these ridiculous sexist attacks even on her and other public health officials who happen to be women. Mm-hmm. It's not hard to it's not hard to see that stuff as well. And I just want to review the the criticisms of the Chinese community here locally of Dr. Tam. You, you were saying the distrust of the WHO and then sort of the way that masks this mask debate was portrayed. Are those the two main things, or, or what else am I missing here? No, that's mainly it. But I think if, if I could summarize, it would be that that she and the Canadian government in general were slow and didn't take it seriously enough because Mm -hmm. the Chinese community was seeing something um, that was happening overseas, certainly, but was happening fast and was happening in a way that um, that alarmed them. Mm -hmm. They knew people and they knew family and friends that were being affected by this and they could see it coming. I could see it coming. Um, And it felt like, for whatever reason, Theresa Tam and the Canadian government didn't see it coming. Mm Mm-hmm. Ian, this has been fascinating, but before I let you go, I want to ask you about you. How are you doing? How's your family? Have you had any epiphanies during this crisis? Um, I've lost four kilos, which is <laughs> four unnecessary kilograms. I'm not going to tell you which parts, which four, which four kilograms, but I've lost four kilograms, so there's that. But, um, you know, it is a weird time, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it strange? You know, I mean, I think... Um, that uh, my wife and I, we went through SARS in Hong Kong and we were part of the SARS quarantine team for the South China Morning Post. And it was similar, but this is something that has no endpoint. You know, that was something that lasted for, you know, about three months. Here, we don't know when it's going to end, but it's been this kind of bonding experience with the rest of the world, don't you think? You know, I mean, we're all sort of going through this strange um, strange limbo of, of social isolation. So there's that as well. You know, I think this, it's, a, it's a strange shared experience. So... I think when we come out of this at the other at the other end, um, we're not going to be. It's not going to be the same world that we that we entered. Yeah, and obviously it's tragic for the people that have passed away because of this, the economic hardship that people have felt. But I do hope on the other side of this, the realization of things that we took for granted, and I think a lot of us are going through just that type of realization, whether that is the social communities we have or whether that's even the 
perhaps underappreciated workforce that we've now recognized as essential to our daily living, I hope we look at those things differently and those people differently when we come out of this. I think first and foremost, it's a human tragedy. You know, Mm -hmm. we're talking about so many lost lives and so many ruined lives uh, and so many ruined livelihoods too. I don't want to downplay that. But mm-hmm. this is first and form. This is first and foremost a pandemic. Uh, this is something that um, you know is infecting millions around the world, is killing tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, and I, I think because we, we are cooped up here, we sort of um, you know can tend to lose sight of that when we're baking our sourdough, you know, and brewing our home brew and giving ourselves haircuts. That's kind of you know a privileged way of looking at this disease, and that is not the way that this disease is experienced by everyone. It's not the way it's being experienced. Uh, by impoverished communities or refugee communities mm-hmm. or communities in distress around the world. And so it's all well and good um, for us to talk about Bonnie Henry's shoes and it's all well and good to talk about how we can't buy toilet paper. But that's not really the story. This is a human tragedy that's unfolding around the world. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point and a good way to cl- sort of end the podcast here. But I have to ask you, are you cutting your own hair? What's going on, Ian? It's going to happen. I'm not going to say when. I'm not going to say where. I'm not going to say how, but it's going to happen. Bull cut or just the whole thing off or what do you think? I, I'm, I'm not sure. My wife is all all up for it, but I think she, she's got this sort of evil gleam in her eyes, which makes me a lot more, lot more reluctant. So, you know, we'll see. If people want to keep up to date with all things Ian Young, where do they find you online? Uh, yeah, you can find me through the South China Morning Post. Just go through the search function or you can uh, follow me on Twitter, Ian James Young 70 That's me. Um, and you'll uh, find all that juicy stuff that I write about. Awesome. Well, Ian, this was a real treat for me. You were absolutely on my long list of people to have on the podcast. And then suddenly there was that Twitter outburst of people asking me to have you on the podcast right away. And it was a time when, honestly, I didn't even know if I was going to continue the podcast because all of my interviews up until then had been in person in studio. But I am really honored that uh, you would sit down with me, even though we're not in the same place. We're speaking over Zoom. I'm very honored that you'd sit down with me and, and have this chat. I not only respect your work, I deeply enjoy it. And I always feel like it gets me thinking. So thank you again. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family and keep up the great work. Yeah, thanks, Mo. Thanks for that. People, especially those of you that requested, demanded that he be on the podcast, I do my best to deliver, and I have to say, I really enjoyed that chat. He's the South China Morning Post's Vancouver correspondent, one of my favorites. He is Ian Young, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.